Good evening and welcome. My name is Kathleen McLean. I'm in the adult programs section of the education department and I'm pleased to welcome you to tonight's talk. Um, Angie Littlefield is a writer, curator, and editor. She spent 33 years in the field of education, the last five as a high school principal, but when she isn't busy doing that, um, she's worked as executive director of the Durham West Arts Center, where she curated the Thompsons of Durham, Tom Thompson's family heritage, and started the Provincial Reading and Remembrance Program. She curated and wrote the catalog for the Dada period in Cologne for the AGO in 1988, and we're happy to have her back uh, for this exhibition, um, Angelica Hurla, The Comet of Cologne Dada, which opened May 23rd and continues to August 30th. Um, she's going to join us again in June. Um, on June 17th and June 24th, we'll be presenting a play that Angie has written called Angelica's Promise, which deals with the last five weeks of Angelica Hurla's life. So um, thank you for joining us, Angie. And I believe after the talk and after the question period, we may have an opportunity to go up to the galleries um, with Angie and look at the exhibition for those of you who haven't had a chance to see it yet. So welcome. Well, thank you all for coming, and uh, I've spoken to much smaller audiences, and I'm such a convert to this material that if there were just two people sitting here, I would be just as enthusiastic about doing this presentation as having as many of you here this evening. Um, I've tried to diversify the material so that uh, what you will see in the exhibition, what is in the catalog, and what is in Angelica's Promise, the play, is all different. So making the effort to come here this evening, you are in fact sharing family secrets that no one else will get to know. And I have to warn you right away, those of you who are strictly art historians are going to be a little bit disappointed because I'm gonna be dishing some dirt this evening. And uh, that's partially uh, because of the, the connection to my family. And uh, I'm going to start with that connection. And the first slide. This is my family. Now, you see Angelica Hurla on the, when you have just a minute, right? On your far left. Uh, I know when this photo was taken because it uh, has a date on the back. It's 1912. Uh, so she's born in 1899. She's uh, very young here. And next to her is her brother Richard. Uh, Richard is born in 1891. She's born in 1899. And uh, he volunteered immediately in the First World War. This will be an issue later when I'm talking a little bit later. Uh, and he was gassed and injured and uh, basically died early as a result of his First World War involvement. He actually died in 1932. Uh, in the middle is my grandmother, Maria. And of the four children that you see there, uh, she's the only one who ended up having a child, and that child was my father. Uh, so uh, beside Maria is my Uncle Willie. I call him my Uncle Willie because he uh, lived right till 1967 and came to Canada and lies buried in Brooklyn, Ontario, um, he came right from when we first immigrated in 1954 to 67 and made 
many, many visits. On his first visit, he actually wrote to find out whether or not he needed a gun for the Indians, and he was serious because uh, Germans grew up on the novels of Karl May and had a very romanticized perception uh, of what Canada was like. So he really did feel that perhaps he would need a gun the first time he came. Um, Uncle Willie is the reason I can dish the dirt because when he died in 67, I was 20 years old and I had a very, very strong relationship with him. And um, I'll tell you one story as to why that's true. Uh, I, lived, I look remarkably like his sister. His sister Angelica died when she was 22 years old. It was extremely hard on him. So when I was born, so many years later, and grew into the little girl that he grew up with, I think he always transferred and identified me with that Angelica. And I wasn't treated like a grandniece. I was almost treated like the sister. And once in uh, about when I was about 19 years of age, I was drawing, not well, I'm not a gifted artist the way the rest of the family was, but I was drawing at the dining room table and uh, he came over to me and ripped away what I had and wanted to know, uh, he was spooked, like what it was that I was doing. Where did you get that idea? Where did you get that idea? And I kept saying to him, I'm just drawing, Uncle William, just drawing. Well, his sister had drawn exactly the same thing. And that's what had spooked him. So I thought, that's it. I'm going to die when I'm 22. So I was very pleased to, to make it to 23. And when I did, I thought it was actually to live out the remainder of Angelica Hurla's life. And in many situations, I have made that sort of my dedication, is to let that young girl who you see there, who grows to be only 22, uh, have an identity that she gets through the art that you see in the gallery, that she gets through the catalog, that she'll get through the play, and that she'll get through my talk this evening as well. Um, Uncle Willie then outlives every one of his siblings, actually in a period between 1923 and 1939, every single member of his family dies. And I think that's why he never marries uh, and uh, he connects to uh, the offspring of his sister Maria and comes to Canada. Now having that kind of a sad background with everyone dying on him the way they did, Uncle Willie was an absolute clown. He didn't, when he came to university, when I was here in residence at U of T, he would have the girls in the residence laughing, even though he didn't even speak the same language as they did. He did physical humor, he did cartooning. The man was just funny, out and out funny. And sometimes I think it's the clowning around that helps to cover over the pain of your losses. And uh, so he clowned a lot, but he didn't talk until very near the end of his life, he did not talk a lot about his sister Angelica. And only when uh, he thought um, that, you know, this was his last opportunity to speak, did he then tell us a little bit more about her. So I'm also now going to tell you a little bit about her. Uh, next slide. Uh, but before I launch into this slide, I should also say, Uncle Willie did not like her husband, Heinrich Herla 
and he did not like Max Ernst. So you'll get to hear a little bit more about that, but I have to put my family prejudices right out on the surface, and that's also why you get some of the family secrets, because they go with the prejudices as well. So this was done uh, by August Maka in 1914. Uh, I, I taught for 33 years, so there's a prize for someone who can tell me what happened to August Maka shortly after 1914. Who knows? Yes, Mr. Park Taylor? He was. He enlisted and died very near to the beginning of the war. So I like this particular picture, though, uh, because Angelica, about this time, apprenticed in millinery. And as the First World War started, uh, a lot of people in North America, Britain, everywhere, women were drawn into the workforce. And Angelica's older sister Maria had studied all the way to Apitur, which is the finishing of high school. But Angelica, the baby of the family, she wanted to, uh, she wanted to work. She was headstrong, and uh, she, when all of the women were in the workforce, she didn't want to be uh, studying anymore. So the father, who was a strong trade unionist, gave in uh, and allowed her to work when she found her own apprenticeship position in millinery. Now, I would like to think that that position was with Levenstern on Strauss, which would just be so perfectly pat, because Max Ernst's first wife, Louise Strauss, her father ran a hat factory in Cologne, and it would just be such a wonderful segue. But I couldn't make that connection, uh, that that's where she actually would have apprenticed. But the concept of what hats mean, Max Ernst did a, a painting called The Hat Makes the Man, and uh, there's also uh, Carlyle's work, uh, Sartre Resartus, which is about uh, Professor Teufelsdroh, has a, a philosophy of clothing. There was this whole idea of how your clothing represented who you are. It was as if the outward shell uh, was your identity. And that changes dramatically when the war comes. But I wanted to show, as a 14, 15, 16-year-old, this is the world that she went into. Next. Now, Willie, first of all, I have to say, too, wasn't my family handsome? They're all so handsome. And in this slide, with Willie and Richard seated, you can see what attractive uh, men they were. But when I look at this slide, which I called Wilhelmine Elegance, I also see cannon fodder, because this was the generation that then went off uh, into the First World War, and so many of them did not survive. And you could have the same type of a picture taken in Britain, and it would be the same situation. You're just looking at these young men who ended up you know, being the pawns of the leaders of their country and being sacrificed in war. But I threw this in because it goes the male equivalent of the previous slide. There is a demeanor of how you dressed up, what you looked like, how you presented yourself publicly. That was very important. And you can see, even if those tuxes were rented, how important these young men felt that their appearance was. Now, this slide here, though, also, Willie to the far left, Richard to his uh, side there, there's a big divide happens here. 
When the war breaks out in August, Richard enlists immediately. Willie goes and registers as a conscientious objector. And that was true. The Cologne art scene split almost in half. Max Ernst and his brother enlisted practically on the first day. Johannes Theodor Bargeld, who was also very important uh, in the Cologne art scene, first day. Otto Freundlich came from France where he was studying art in order to enlist. And both Bargeld and uh, Freundlich were actually in the same unit, the Cuirassiers. The people who stayed behind, such as Seivert, Herle, Heinrich Herle, and Willy Fick, who were the conscientious objectors, they didn't see eye to eye with the group that was so eager to go off and fight the war. And when you go through the two exhibitions, almost immediately when you come in, there's a picture of a, of a soldier uh, with a pickle group on, you know, there's sort of the, the hat of the soldier, and then a man with a gunshot wound. Well, that's Heinrich Herle's anti-war stance that you're seeing there. And when you continue on into the Köln progressives, you see their political agenda carried right through from that anti-war stance into what they do later. Next. Now I'm starting the dirt, the real dirt. The, the uh, Angelica Hurler was very young when she first met Heinrich, probably only about 16 years of age. Uh, the family had music evenings, and uh, because all of the Fick children could play more than one instrument, and so they would have these evenings once a week where they played everything from shimmy, foxtrots, to classical music, and uh, they performed for their friends. And since uh, they uh, had some of the same overlap friends from Kunstgewerbeschule, uh, Angelica probably met her husband-to-be uh, through those uh, music evenings. But Heinrich already had a girlfriend, and his girlfriend was Millie Theophil. And uh, the poor young lass died early. And uh, this is uh, one little footnote in a book by Dirk Bacchus caught my attention. The poor deer dies of an inflammation of the abdomen. Well, I was pretty suspicious as to what the inflammation of the abdomen was. I read a little further, and it says that the sister, Thesa, always said that the parents blamed Heinrich Herla for her death. I think that's the first woman Heinrich Herle kills with his love. So poor Millie lives to be about 70. She dies in 1917. And he does an etching, which is in the Museum Ludwig, called Death and the Maiden. There's actually a Schubert song called Death and the Maiden. And he's uh, alluding to that. But is there any question when you see them side by side that he's also alluding to the death of his girlfriend? Uh, in the play, I actually have Angelica even alluding to it. Next slide. Then this, the colored one is from the Museum Ludwig. It's an early Heinrich Herle, very early style, cubistic, not at all normally in fitting with what you would select uh, but I wanted it because most of the scholarship has 
Perla with uh, Millie Theophil and Angelica sort of coming a little later onto the scene. But this very early Heinrich Hurler work called Son Between Mother and Woman, I think that's Angelica. She's wearing a hat. Uh, I don't think, the, I'm not talking about the towering woman, which is the mother, but the, the girl there, the befuddled girl, wearing the hat with a feather on it, that I think is supposed to represent Angelica. And part of the reason why the son is trapped between mother and, uh, and lady is because the mother wasn't too keen. Uh, Herla had, uh, in their apartment, had set up a studio on the Air, in the Erstrasse, and I don't think he, the mother liked the visits of the, the young ladies, whether it be Millie or whether it be Angelica, uh, to the, uh, the studio in their apartment. Now, my points got reversed here, but uh, because the first one should be Willie Fick and Heinrich Hurler were conscientious objectors. So they first served in 1917. They did not go off immediately to war. And when they did go, uh, Willie drove wagons and Hurler was a telephonist. As conscientious objectors, they did not need to uh, be in com combat positions. And uh, while Herla was at war, his father died of tuberculosis. So I was left to speculate whether or not, so many of the men uh, on all sides of the uh, uh, war, including many Canadians, came back uh, filled with tuberculosis, the trenches being so muddy and so wet. It was quite common for them to have tuberculosis. But since the father died while he was at war, I wondered whether or not Heinrich brought the tuberculosis from war or whether or not it had already been in the home uh, as well. And uh, the other part of it then, you've got my great-grandfather Richard in the middle there, and uh, he did not approve of Heinrich Herle. Heinrich Herle was uh, basically a high school dropout, uh, a very charming, charismatic man, but he went traveling around Europe, worked for the circus, uh, had no real means of uh, sustaining a relationship monetarily. And so uh, Richard was extreme, the dad was very much in favor of the arts. He encouraged the music, the, the theater, everything, but he drew the line at what he considered the bohemian lifestyle. And Heinrich Hurler represented that bohemian lifestyle. So he would not, let them get married. So Mark, as soon as war was over in 1918, Max Ernst married Louis Strauss, and uh, Angelica's friend Marta married the artist Anton Raderscheid. So the marriages were going on all around them, but Angelica was denied getting married because her father refused the permission. Uh, next, please. This is probably Angelica's first work. It's a caricature in a newspaper called Die Sozialistische Republik from 1919. That fall, they were having city elections. And these young people now, those of you who've read All's Quiet on the Western Front, I know it's a little bit later, but it reflects an earlier time period. Uh, the people who saw war service were devastated by what they saw, and they felt a total betrayal by the older generation. And out of that betrayal is where you get the, the Dada movement as well. 
uh, the Dada movement starting much earlier in Zurich than it takes place in Cologne, because Cologne was occupied by the British and by the French. So they didn't have the freedom of expression that you had in, in, in other places in Germany, even in Berlin, uh, was not under the type of occupation that Cologne was under. So what she is doing here is, it says, Dazu die Rheinische Zeitung up there. This is actually in a different newspaper, but she's alluding to an article in number 204 of the Rheinische Zeitung, and this, by the way, is in the catalog, so those of you who are interested, you can see it again. Uh, she's alluding to another newspaper article where the new police president does a speech to his assembled police people, and he says, you know, you were previously barred from being able to have, um, uh, you know, positions because you were police officers, but the SPD, you support the SPD, and we will make sure that you can uh, have positions in, in power. Now, Angelica Hurla and her friends were violently opposed to the SPD. They viewed the SPD as the betrayers of the young people. The SPD, which had said was in power before the war, had promised that they would not take Germany into war. And then at the very last minute, the SPD uh, voted for war credits. And it actually caused splits, several splits during the war within the SPD party, where you get splinter parties develop because there was so much antagonism towards the SPD. So Angelica Hurley is just horrified that this police president would bribe the, the police with uh, political positions. Now, notice how she does the caricature. They're dejected, they're, but they're wearing all of their medals. They still look like the Grand Hussars with the pickle huba on. Uh, but then, look how happy they are when they are promised that they can be uh, in positions of power. Uh, when you actually look at it for a little longer the way you are now, you start seeing all of the little tiny details that she puts in. And her first style, and remember, she only lives to be 22, but her first style is actually very linear. And it's later as we go through some other slides that you will see that she turns away from the linear style. Our, sarcastically, the title is, The Goal of the Revolution Has Been Attained. attained. Well, of course, it hasn't. That after the war is over, there's a German revolution. They're trying to change the political lay of the land. They're trying to put the left into power. And every time they try to put the left into power, something comes along to squash them. And uh, she's saying, no, the goals of the revolution have not been attained. Uh, next slide. This work to the left, Jean Juarez, he was actually a French pacifist who was already assassinated in 1914 on the eve of the First World War. Angelica Hurler would only have been 14 years old, so she wouldn't have known necessarily about Jean Juarez, even though she was very politically astute, read newspapers, and discussed things with her family. So there is a slight chance that she might have known about him. But uh, where she probably really knows about him is that as soon as uh, women get the vote and Germany is back on its feet to have its first free democratic election, 
Two people are assassinated in Berlin, very famous people. I think Mr. Michael Park Taylor may be the only one, but if I throw this out, man and woman, two very famous people who were assassinated, you know. That's right, they were assassinated. So there were six people who were assassinated uh, during a very short time period. Uh, three of them, I think, are from Munich. Two of them are from Berlin. But they're being targeted because, uh, I always say money protects money. Like, the powers of the establishment were frightened that the leftists were gaining more and more power. And so they started using strong-arm tactics because Rosa Luxemburg and uh, Karl Liebknecht were actually assassinated by members linked to the SPD government. So uh, Angelica Hurla then recently eloped because she finally's had enough and runs off. And the summer of 1919, she elopes. She goes for her honeymoon with Heinrich to a place outside Cologne in the mountains called the Eiffel. And uh, there is a, a group of artists who've retreated from the occupation. And she works with this group of artists putting together this portfolio called Lebendige, the living ones. Because as far as they're concerned, these martyrs to socialism will live forever. And in the exhibition, you have the uncut folio of this particular Lebendige, which is very rare and unusual to have. And um, uh, as I said, Angelica probably knew of him. Now, this is sheerest happenstance that I put the dog next to this particular slide. I did not mean to denigrate poor Jean Juarez, but when I saw them side by side, doesn't the, the echoes are actually quite remarkable, uh, but not totally unintentional. What I'd wanted to, to do with this slide is say at the same time as she was doing the woodcuts and was so active politically, she was also engaged in the Cologne's Dada activities and earned herself the, the title of Dada Angelica because in November of 1919 was the first Dada exhibition in Cologne called Section D. And so this particular Dada dog I thought represented both her humor, her irreverence, and the type of thing that was being done in the section D part of the exhibition, where they used a piano hammer as a sculpture, uh, they had African masks, they did all sorts of things to affront the public, that was their, their goal. They wanted the art establishment to have their noses just turned awry. Uh, because they felt that the art establishment was suppressing what true art was about. And it was about the same time that they took original artworks and posted them on the streets for the workers to see. And in the exhibition, there is a drawing that is from the Cripple Folder portfolio that actually still has the sticker of the party that Bargeld uh, belonged to, and Bargeld, who came from a family with money, financed a lot of uh, uh, what they were doing at the time. Next, please. Now you have the old and the new side by side. Uh, Franz von Stuck uh, was a teacher at the Munich Academy. 
he actually taught Paul Clay, and he taught um, uh, Peter Oblin. And Peter Oblin was one of the artists of this previous portfolio that Angelica worked with. She worked with uh, Raiderscheidt, Zyvert, and Oblin, which uh, when she was 19 years old, and they were all sort of professionals at that point. So two of these people had Franz von Stuck as a teacher, very conservative. This particular sculpture uh, model was actually already uh, done at the turn of the century, about 1905. Then the uh, Wallgraf Richards Museum bought a full-size model and put it in their courtyard. And uh, then the scuttlebutt, it wasn't supposed to get out, and this is one of the rumors I found out about through Uncle Willie. Then the rumor was is that they were going to put this atrocity up in front of the new Köln Kunstverein. Well, the Dadaists were horrified that this type of old world establishment art, now you may like it, you know, you don't be ashamed if you like it, but to the Dadaists, this was like horrible, that they would take this old world, old style art and put it up on a pedestal in front of a new art institution. So Angelica Hurla's drawing for the Bulletin X, D exhibition is the rider, which I think is a total spoof of the rider that was going to go up in front of the Köln Kunstverein. And even her nose looks a little bit like a horse itself once you start looking at the close-ups. And I swear there's a bit of pubic hair showing. Like she is so irreverent in what she is doing. Uh, and she gives her three breasts, I think, because the Amazons cut off one breast. So, you know, this woman's got one to spare. Uh, she's so much a representative of, of the older time period. Now, this was in Bulletin D, and I think a little interesting tidbit, because you've come here, and even, I don't even know if Michael Park Taylor knows this, but in Bulletin D, they had actually put uh, some uh, artwork by Paul Clay on, ex on exhibition as part of that, too. Um, Max Ernst had gone and gotten it from Munich. And uh, one of those pieces of art sold to Mrs. Bargeld. Mrs. Grunebel bought one of the art pieces from the Bulletin D exhibition, which I thought was really interesting. Next slide, please. Now, in the war, the women, 50 to 60% of the women worked, and it was natural for women to have to have clothing that was more suited to being in the workforce. So you saw women starting to wear uh, pants. Uh, they shortened their hair. Uh, that drawing of, you know, August Maka, a woman in front of the hat store, well, the styles changed pretty dramatically. And you start getting the flappers with their short hair. In German, the bobbed hair was called the Bubikopf, but when it was slicked down, it was the shingle. And those two women, I actually think, represent Marta and Angelica, because Angelica's hair was always flyaway. She could never get her bangs to sit still. And so I think the woman in the rear has those sort of curly fringes. And Marta slicked her hair down, and uh, that would be in the shingle. So you have the new woman, and I said from one war to another, because they get the right to vote, but they get the right to work. Uh, 
But as soon as the war is over, what happened in Canada, Britain, Europe? What were the women told? Stay home. I actually, for another project I did, found an Ontario government website where there was the government of Ontario issued a poster that was posted telling women to get out of the workforce. And that's here in Canada. We always think it's happening somewhere else. No, right here in Ontario. So these women get all these liber liberties. They prove their capacity. And then they're told, get back out of the workplace. So they're going from one war into another war. And part of that, then, you do get these gender battles that take place. This is much later, this piece. This photography is of Helena Ablen, the wife of the man that Angelica Hurla worked with. August Sander does this photograph. August Sander is a very famous uh, German photographer. And he actually does another photo of her with her daughter, where she is still looking a little tough, but not quite as tough as in this picture. But Sander also does a picture of Herla Heinrich dressed up as a, as a woman. And Heinrich Herla made a pretty damn pretty woman. So I think there were a lot of uh, gender issues you know, being fought out in the battlefield as well. And uh, I've put this in here even though it's later because the women did have to fight on, on the two fronts. Okay, next. And this woman is a bit of an extreme, Helena. Now, Angelica then develops as an artist in her own right, and she's working away, and uh, so she's, uh, she and her husband found the Schlemiel Verlag, uh, which those of you taking notes, I, I, I won't even pretend to try to spell that for you, it's, but it's got the umlaut on it. Uh, and it's sort of untranslatable. They, I think it's a made-up word, although there was a mathematician called Schlemiel. Uh, and uh, they actually uh, published two of the uh, biggest uh, Dada publications in uh, Cologne at the time. One is Die Schamade, which is an international periodical, and the other one is uh, Fiat Modes by Ernst Mo, er, sorry, Max Ernst. And one of those is in the exhibition here. And it relates back again to the concept of clothing, because Fiat Modes means make fashions down with art, uh, because the same way as the clothing made the person, uh, that was the concept of pre-war, now the concept is, is don't vest into anything, stick with fashion, churn it through, down, you know, down with the established art, up with the new art. Uh, and Heinrich starts drawing and painting her as do other people. So it is my great aunt, but there's something about her that was very charismatic. And when you go through the exhibition, there's an entire wall of renderings of her. And when you think of a 22-year-old, how many times do 22-year-olds get four or five different artists rendering them? Uh, but she did. This one on the right, this photo, is probably one of her last outings. Uh, she's gone to the city park with her friends, Marta and Anton. And in the room where the timeline is, you actually see that whole photo. They're in a rowboat at the city park. And uh, as I said, it's probably one of her last outings. She's very heavily with, infected with tuberculosis at this point. Next. 
I wanted to then show another direction. She, even though she's so young, she starts into another direction with a group that calls itself Stupid. Stupid has its first exhibition in the summer of 1920, and they have it in the home of Anton and Marta Raderscheid at Hildebold Platz. These are two pages from the catalog for that uh, permanent exhibition at Hildebold Platz, and both of them are missing works. Uh, the one on the right, the lino block is upstairs in the display case. Uh, no extant copies of that exist except for the ones I can only whisper about to people afterwards. Uh, I can't say publicly what's happened here with that one, but I can whisper to people afterwards. But if you look at the two missing works, that one on the left is an oil, and this one here is a print. Uh, she does not work in color or oil very much, although there's one very dark oil upstairs. And look at how she, when you go into the, those of you who are tour guides slash docents, look at this in terms of going into the Cologne Progressives. I mean, she is working away in 1920 at the underpinnings of the, the same ideas that the progressive will develop in order to have a pictorial language. Only she is very caught up by the polka dot. And I have to say I'm very fond of the polka dot myself. Uh, so new worlds, new ways of expression. Then in 1922, uh, back to the dishing the dirt, actually goes back to 21. Uh, Paula and Gala Eloard, he's a French poet, uh, come to Cologne. And uh, they had wanted to meet up with Max before, Max Ernst before, but some chemistry happens between Max Ernst and Gala Eloard. And so there are a couple more trips back and forth. You don't have to know the sordid details. And if you do, you have to come to my play and you'll get the sordid details. Uh, but in the fall of 22, Max Ernst leaves his wife and young child and goes off in a menage a trois with Gala and, uh, and Paul. They actually live together in Paris in the same apartment. And at some point, Paul gets enough of it and leaves to go to Indochina. And Max Ernst sells his entire oeuvre so at that, that point so that he can follow uh, with Gala uh, to, to Indochina to catch up with, with Paul. So you have this uh, love triangle going on, which kind of in a way almost validates the leaving of spouses because he leaves. And shortly thereafter, Heinrich Herle also leaves. Uh, so in the fall of 1921, spouses are hitting the road. And even Anton Raderscheidt, who doesn't leave his wife for another decade or so, starts painting these lonely pairs because he's already disenchanted with his wife as well. So the marriages that were made in right after the war start crumbling pretty you know, darn quickly uh, within three or four years. So you get, next slide, a radical shift in the art style and in the iconography. And 
uh, I picked these two slides on purpose because the one that looks so wonderful and good shape is from the Yale University collection. Catherine Dreyer uh, purchased that in 1922 from the Nierendorf Gallery in, in Cologne. So it has had a museum's custodial care ever since 1922. The work on the right I found as a 20-year-old in a garden shed in Cologne where the roof leaked, where it had been for 40 years and was melded together and made almost mush. And when these works came to the Art Gallery of Ontario in 1980-something, uh, um, they had to first stabilize this work. Right? It was in terrible, terrible shape. And uh, some of the things could only be stabilized. They couldn't be repaired any more than what they were repaired. And when you do tours, like they come through their injuries. They've had to survive a lot. And for those of you who haven't heard the story of the saving of the collection, uh, which is saved from the Nazis, it's track one on the listening station. I'm not going to go over it tonight because you have the option to listen to it on track one. But here you see Angelica go into what I call uh, not her, just her proto-surrealism, but it's her feminist phase. I have stared and stared and stared at these pictures because I was trying to develop the personality that I would write the play around. And uh, I saw this as a woman, the left one. I saw it as a woman who can't get anywhere. She is, she can't get anywhere because she doesn't even have two legs. She has no real environment that she's in. On top of that, she's weighed down. And Angelica Hurl often uses only one eye or no eye. Uh, because it's not just the Dechirico shape that she's after. I think she's after what the single eye and the lack of awareness represents. I think she ends up kicking herself that she ended up with Heinrich Hurl at this point. She loves him, but uh, he has left her uh, as well and taken up with a woman called Tata Kleinertz, uh, who was also married. And uh, so she's left alone in the apartment by herself with her artwork, um, working away, refuses to go home, even though the parents want her to go back, Willie wants her to go back. She's too proud, she wants to continue her artwork, and it is only in the last week before her death that Uncle Willie actually bodily carries her home, uh, but she's too ill at that point. So in those final year and a half uh, that she's alone in the apartment, this is her style, this is her iconography. And there is a famous scandal that takes place uh, uh, during the time of uh, the revolution, uh, which has an article where in Dresden what happens is, I don't know how I'm doing, let me, oh, I gotta speed up, gotta speed up. Uh, in Dresden there is, uh, uh, one of the Rubens paintings is um, shot through by a bullet and Kokoschka, as part of the street fighting, Kokoschka, who is a professor at that point at the university, uh, puts an ad into 40 different German newspapers saying you have to protect the German heritage. Take your squabbles elsewhere, for goodness sake, no you know, holes in the artworks. And all of the Dada political people say, why are you trying to protect you know, the, the Rubens painting 
and what's in the art galleries. Art galleries have been framing holes for a long time already. And here you have an empty frame uh, because, again, Angelica Hurla at that point did not believe in, in uh, what art galleries were doing. She loved the AGO now, but uh, not at that point. Notice the female figure is on a tiny little spring uh, because the women, who could be the artists, could be anything, but how could they sustain themselves when they stand like that on a spring? And if that fan was to blow, how could they, again, sustain themselves? Next. Now, we are going to go quickly through this series because this is a, on the left is a very early work by Heinrich Herla of a model. And I think putting Millie next to it, it's, it's either a romanticized model or it's Millie, uh, but it's not Angelica that he's depicting. Uh, next. Then he has a series that he calls Artistin. The one on the left is from uh, the early 20s, and the one on the right is from 1926. Uh, the one on the right is actually in the catalog, the one on the left isn't, because I only recently noticed uh, it in the catalog, the Bacchus, it's a tiny little thing. But I don't think his perception of female artists are all that strong. Uh, he is not in favor of Marta Hageman, who is an artist. He is uh, kind of ticked off with that Angelica. His wife is getting as much recognition as she's getting. And so the, uh, the female artists come off quite poorly. I think both are actually generic female artists because the same way as I said women were in a war, female artists were even more so in a war. Next. I think little Heinrich takes it one step further. He's not content to basically demonize female artists but in the exhibition upstairs, there's a picture on the wall of portraits where Angelica's face is pockmarked. And this one on the left, although it's called Dirna, which sort of represents prostitute, that face looks almost glued on to that body and as if it could be taken off. And if that face could be taken off, would that face not transfer across? And so I think the pockmarks, although she didn't have pockmarks with the tuberculosis, I think they're his representation of the disease. And the same time, he always, all, always said, you know, Heinrich Hurla left Angelica Hurla because he was afraid of getting tuberculosis. Hello, he went home where Marie, his sister, was dying of tuberculosis. So he went from one apartment where there was tuberculosis to another apartment that was filled with tuberculosis. So that theory is shot. Uh, there has to be totally different reasons why he decides to leave. And I think part of it is the competition with a very competent female artist. He did not want that competition. As you saw from the previous slide, those female artists were in a class all of their own. So he demonizes her and moves on. And we finish, next, with the mystery work. When I was in uh, Carleton in 2007 researching this exhibition, 
Lynette Roth, who's the curator of the Carolyn Progressive, said, you have to see this transparency I found. And she ran upstairs, that we don't know where this painting is. She ran upstairs and found this transparency. And it is signed in the top corner, Hurla. Uh, and so uh, we thought it was Heinrich Hurla painting Angelica Hurla. But with what I have just talked about, how he ends up demonizing female artists and basically makes her pretty pockmarked by about 21 onwards, my theory is, is that this is actually Angelica as a self-portrait, as opposed to a Heinrich Herle. I started looking at the signatures. Now that is a definite Angelica Herle 22, but if you, those of you who are docents, start looking at the signatures on all of the works as you go around, because as you do, you will discover that that signature of this work could easily be either him or her. So I'm putting it up to you now. I want to entertain some educated guesses as to who you think painted this portrait and why. And that's where we're, that's where we're ending.